when we grasp just how short we have on this planet as a lifespan, we can begin to channel our energy into truly living. And one of the questions I often ask people is, how much longer will you avoid doing what you are capable of? I used the time outside of work to explore what I wanted to do because I just, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Najahi Events. Today's guest, he's a public speaker, a personal development entrepreneur. He started his high-flying career in the financial sector working at one of the top firms in the industry. Just 14 months into that company, it collapsed, causing the ripple effect of the 2008 global financial crisis. Without the demands of what he now considers a false sense of security in the corporate world, Simon retrains to follow a career in coaching. His mission in life became focused on helping as many people as he can connect the heart to the mind to transform their lives. He does this by using true wisdom instead of glamour to convey his message. His work has been recognized by major corporations such as Sky News, BBC, where he's all been for interviews, while Barclays featured him on a nationwide campaign, asking him questions on how families could embrace better lifestyle habits. He's an award-winning life coach, an international keynote speaker. He's published the best-selling book, Energize, in April 2022. Cue the music. Let's get stuck in to the awesome Simon Alexander Ong. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. So Bonnie Tyler has joined us in the studio today. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Simon. Sorry to say that. You've obviously you've told us you've got a really sore throat, so I want to make sure that everyone's aware Simon's got a bit of a poorly throat at the moment. So hopefully, okay, hopefully you'll uh, be able to listen to it. If not, we'll try and use AI to fix it. Thank you so much for having me. I've um I've kind of known you, but I haven't known you for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's like I know you through social media. Um I've seen you out there doing your thing. I know a bit of your backstory. And there's there's something there's some form of incubator that exists mm. in Malaysia, okay, <laughs> that, that that spouts out these kind of entrepreneurs that come into this space over here and have an impact. And obviously, we'll talk about the people yeah. that you we know exactly who they are. But I, I've got one of my businesses is based in Malaysia in KL. So mm-hmm. obviously, I know Malaysia. I've lived in Malaysia myself in the past. So when you look back at your story, being a Chinese Malay 
What impact did that have on you becoming the person you became, really? There were some good parts, also some bad parts. The good parts is that I learned all about hard work. You know, my mum and dad were immigrants into the UK and they had to work hard. My my dad had to have two, two to three jobs at any one time just to pay rent. And my my mum was supporting him. And what they wanted for us is a good future. The bad part was it was so focused on academics. I had to be top of the class, be performing the best. And so there was this very high expectation of what we had to achieve uh, if we were to be successful. So when I grew up, I had this mistaken belief that I had to be a doctor, a banker, a lawyer, or an accountant. And with that narrow set of jobs, I graduated. I chose the banking route at what was probably the worst possible time in the middle of 2007. Mm-hmm. A oh, year, really bad time. Really bad time. <laughs> <laughs> a year before the global financial crisis. And uh, it, was, it was a tough time because I felt like I'd let everyone down. And I think that pressure of having to meet such high expectations really challenged me mentally. So on the one side, the hard work ethic was very powerful. But on the other side, it was this high expectation which affected me at a mental level. You must have an enormous amount of sympathy for anyone uh, that's in that position or been in that position because you just Mm. get it. But when you think about it, look, I I spent a lot of time in developing countries when I was Mm. young. And for the, the kids that were going to be overseas students it was always about education. Yeah. It was like, that's that's your way out in life. You know, no matter what happens, that's your mm. way out. The, the word entrepreneur wasn't a word. Mm. And and I think because it wasn't a word and it wasn't a thing, we didn't we didn't associate that as a business, uh, uh, as a career mm. path, did we? You know, so you met business owners, mm. you met successful business people, but, you know, Back was definitely when I'm 53. When I was young, I'd never heard the word entrepreneur. That was that wasn't a word. That, that, was, that sounds French, you know. Mm. What does that mean? So, when I think about people that have, and it's the Commonwealth because I was in Nigeria when I was young. Okay, okay. Malaysia was part of the Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. No, Nigeria is part of the Commonwealth. It's like get the kids to London to school, get them to England <laughs> for school. You know, that's where mm-hmm. they've got to be. They've got to get a good education, and that's that's your foundation. Yeah, you know, and and, and I failed terribly at school. Mm. I was the kid looking out the window all the time. I could not, everything went in and out the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even remember subjects that I enjoyed. It was because I needed to do things practically to learn. Yeah. So, and again, how did we know back then about different mm. ways of learning? It was like sit in the classroom with your notepad. She's on the blackboard writing it down and copy it. Yeah. So when you think about that expectation you had, that's very normal. Yeah. For the world you come from, mm. you start a job working in banking yeah dad's proud got a job in mm-hmm. banking that's my boy yeah it's my boy he did what he, he followed that path mm. he couldn't blame you for what happened with the financial crisis though could he not at all i mean it just showed me that there will always be curveballs that are thrown your way we we think we can plan years ahead the reality is we just cannot predict what is going to happen and so for me when i when i got the job not only was my dad proud I was proud. I was like, I finally got a job. I'm doing my family proud. I'll get myself up the career ladder and I'll see where I'll be in a few years' time. And hopefully I can move to another company 
yeah, pay-wise, or, you know, do something with my life. Who would have predicted a year later I would have to be thinking about all those questions at such an early stage? But if there's anything I've learned, is that in those darkest moments, those most challenging times in our life, lie the wisdom and the insight to build the best moments of our life. Without a doubt. Mm. Tell me about the impact on your mum passing, what it had on you as a young, a young man, okay? You were, were argu yeah. arguably a boy. Were you, how, how many brothers and sisters have you got? So I've got one younger brother. Okay, and so how old were you when mum passed? Seven, 17. And how old was he? 16. Okay, so the ages are close. Yeah. And I'm going to assume mum's the rock. Mum was the emotional glue of the family. So what impact did her passing have on you during those, those early years of after she died? Yeah, when she passed, it was a, it was a massive shock because it was unexpected. It wasn't like we knew she was going to pass at some point or she, she had cancer or she had an illness. It was, it was a tragic accident. And I, I remember being called to the headmaster's room. My, my physics teacher comes up to me and he says, Simon, the headmaster wants to see you. First thought in my head was, what have I done wrong? Yeah. What am I going to be told off for? So I'm walking down the corridor. It's a long walk to the headmaster's office. And I'm thinking to myself... What if I get suspended? What if I get expelled? I have no idea what I've done. What's my dad going to say? So I sit down and he looks at me and he says, Simon, take as much time as you need away from school. Unfortunately, your mum is in a coma and we don't know if she's going to make it. And so my dad was waiting outside in reception. He took us to the hospital and we stayed there for a few days. And unfortunately, she didn't make it. And... At that time, I, I couldn't speak to anyone outside of the family because at that point, there was no resources about mental health. You know, today, there's lots of talk and resources and tools around mental health. But then I, I didn't know how to cope. And so I just kept it all in. I found refuge in solitude. And when I did start university, I became a little more comfortable talking about it with people. But... The most important lesson I learned from that experience is two words, don't wait. Because it taught me how fragile life is and it reminded me that when we grasp just how short we have on this planet as a lifespan, we can begin to channel our energy into truly living. Mm. <laughs> is your mum with you? Do you feel her presence? Do you talk to her? Do you, you mm. still connected with your mum? I, I still visit her grave. And I've, I've also brought my wife with me and, uh, and, and my daughter. And one of the qualities she left, she was a nurse before she became a housewife. And she always cared for people in their profession. And I hope that through the work I do, I'm in some way continuing her legacy. That's lovely. I don't ever... I try and think about my mum mm. um, um, and what impact. And obviously my parents are much older now. My mum's, what, 79 years old. But she's, she's my hero, you know. Mm. She's, she's, she's just like, if, if, if I do anything, 
two things that happen. I want to tell her first, mm -hmm. okay? And she's always the first person to congratulate me. Yeah. So she's either reaching out to me or I'm either reaching out to her. She's heard and she <laughs> wants to. And that, that pride that she has in me is, is, is something that keeps, you know, when, you, when there's dark mm. days and when there's low days, yeah. she keeps me going. So I couldn't imagine to go through what you went through. And, and I think it also shows that one of the greatest gifts that we can give people is the feeling that they are trusted, they are supported, and they are appreciated. And as parents, we try to do that. But I think if you are in a position of leadership, we can also do that as well. Did your dad have a very different parenting style to your mum? <laughs> very, very different. Very stereotypically uh, strict Chinese father. Yeah. It was very much results-driven. Mm -hmm. uh, but in a, in a good way, I guess, looking back. I remember when I first told him that I landed an opportunity to speak at a big company. And usually if my mum was alive, she would have said, congratulations, Simon. Well done. Pat in the back. You're going to do amazing. The first thing my dad said was, how much are they paying you? <laughs> <laughs> Typical answer. <laughs> and so did your, did, did your bonds just grow stronger and stronger with your dad over the years and you're very yeah. tight with him now, yeah? Because I think that with the passing of my mum, my, my dad had to almost take on two roles. Mm -hmm. Dad of the father and dad of the mother. And I feel for him. It's not easy. I mean, single parenting is never easy. But when you have to do it while going through the process of grieving, it's even harder. And what he's done with my brother and I, I think it's been extraordinary in also coping himself with the loss of his wife. And to see him so proud of what I do. I mean, there was a point where I couldn't tell him that I was quitting the corporate world to run my own business. He, he wouldn't understand. And then to see him now, when I launched my book, uh, we had a book launch of about 300 people. There were celebrities, there were journalists, there were editors. And to see my dad, like a kid in a candy shop, saying, Simon, can you take a photo with me with this person, with that person? Oh, isn't that woman from television? Can you take a photo with me with her? It was just so beautiful to see. Mm. <laughs> That's lovely. That's lovely. Does, we'll talk about your career in a second. Your, your, your mum's passing, is there part of what you do every day that, that you do almost for her? Is there part of the inspiration that comes to, to show her and to prove to her and to remind her? Is you think like that at all? You know, it's part of your driving force within you, you know, wanting to make your mum proud? In, in, in some ways, yes. In others, it's just to share the qualities that she had with others. Yeah. So whether it's kindness, caring, trusting, believing in others. You know, if I can show that you can achieve success by being nice, by being kind to one another, that's a great example and a legacy to set. Mm. I would not disagree with that. Mm. Okay, let's talk about your career. Um, clearly not a vocal coach. <laughs> <laughs> but you're doing well, so <laughs> it's not bad. It's not bad. You're in the corporate world. 
lots of people get into that mm. kind of standard stuff. I think most people that before they become entrepreneurs start in some form of company employed by others because mm -hmm. they've got to learn, you know, it's like my eldest daughter, she's got great ambitions. I'm like, look, you go into this company and they're going to pay you an experience. <laughs> you know, it's not about the salaries of the first mm -hmm. couple of years. It's about what they're going to teach you, you know. But she wants to get out there, but she doesn't have skills yet. So I think yeah. that when everyone goes into the corporate world, it's like there's this big transition from corporate into this like entrepreneurial space. It's like, you know, leaving the misery of the corporate world. I never saw it as misery. Mm. I actually quite enjoyed my my times in the corporate world. I had, yeah. you know, great friendships, great banter, challenges, you know. Of course you'd get the, the odd hand grenade come in when you'd have one of these <laughs> one of these entrepreneurs would go, Oh, how do you enjoy making other people money, you know? <laughs> How do you enjoy making the directors of this company rich? And you'd be like, sit there for a minute going, yeah, am I doing that really? <laughs> um, which would make you think maybe we should do it on its own. But when we see people come out of the corporate world, the majority that leave the corporate mm. world that go into an entrepreneurial space fail miserably. Yeah. And, and obviously there are very clear reasons for that. But there's a big excitement about moving mm. out into this new, exciting, I own, I'm in charge, I'm in control, yeah. the future's in my hands, okay, <laughs> type of thing. Um, but they don't remember that you can have a day off sick over here yeah. and you're still going to get paid. Mm. You know, you can go on holiday for two weeks and, and you're still going to get paid, you know. Yeah. And, and you might not have the perfect job, but you know what? There's a building that you go to every day and there's a desk and the phone's paid mm. for and the heating and electricity's paid for and there are people around you to support you with the work that you do. Mm. Whereas over here, it's kind of like <laughs> none of that. It's like yeah. nothing at all. You're on your own. So what made you move from this space to this space and how did you do it successfully? <coughs> well, they are two very different spaces. Mm. And I used the time outside of work to explore what I wanted to do because I just, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I knew I wanted to work for myself, but I didn't know in which direction. So I used the time outside of work to read books, go to seminars, just absorb everything that I could to open my mind because before then I worked with people in finance I went drinking with people in finance and I spent my weekends with people in finance so I had to get out of that bubble I had to immerse myself in a very different environment mm. and even though I, I didn't find the work I was doing fulfilling what I had to do was change my relationship with it so I didn't see it as bad or I hate it because if you have a negative relationship with it, it's just going to drain you energetically. But if you reframe your relationship with it and see it as a stepping stone to what you want to do, to see the money and the income you're being paid by your employer as capital for you to explore what you want to do long term, suddenly you can be grateful for what you do have and use that time wisely outside of work. And, and that's what I did. I, I built the uh, side hustle up until a point I had three clients. And then it got to that moment where I had to decide, do I stay in this job and only have three clients or do I quit and see how far I can take it? And it took me, it took me about three or four months of back and forth in my head weighing up all the options and the risks. And then I remember it was the support of my wife. She said to me, Simon, whatever choice you make, I'll be there to support you. And just having that 
that reassurance gave me the confidence to go in and say to my boss, I'm resigning and I'm leaving the industry. And it was the beginning of such a beautiful journey to be where I am today. That's interesting. But what, what, what were you selling at that time? What were the clients? What were you coaching on? So at the beginning, it was just one-to-one coaching. Anybody, on what though? Coaching people? Life coaching. Life coaching. Life coaching. Okay. So, so, so we've got life coaching going on. You decided to go down this path. You've got two or three clients now that you've got that are paying mm. you money on a regular basis. Yep. So you're seeing this revenue coming in. For a lot of people, it's where that crossover happens. Mm. It's like, here's my, here's my salary I get right now. Okay. And this income has to grow here from my, my kind of, well, side hustle. Let's yeah. use that term. My side hustle until the point that the side hustle revenue overtakes this which means you can walk away from it that's the kind of like the 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 safe and secure way of doing it it's the ideal scenario yeah mm. but if you don't get to that point then you go into this place called the void don't you yeah, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know and, and and i'm assuming you've got three clients it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't equate to your total salary so it's like you have to jump yeah and i think what made it more important was because i knew that if i got a fourth client my day job would suffer and my coaching would suffer. So I had a choice. It was a point in the road where I had to decide do I go left or right. And interestingly enough, when you start to follow what pulls you forward, other avenues begin to open. 18 months later, one of my clients said to me, Simon, my company are looking for a speaker. Would you be interested in speaking? I said, sure. I would love to try something new. I spoke there. They loved it. The company was Barclays. And then they said, Simon, can we shoot an advert with you? Can we bring you back? Next minute I knew I had lots of inquiries saying, Simon, can you come to our conference? Can you speak our company? And so suddenly the speaking took off. And then from there, I got invited onto Sky News and the BBC and then had conversations with Penguin to write my first book. And... It was just crazy to think that at the beginning, all I wanted to do was to build a successful coaching business. And suddenly, I'm now doing so much more. This is really interesting. It's kind of, you know it's meant for you the first time you get paid money to speak on a stage. (laughs) You stand on the stage because you love doing it. Mm. Okay, and then someone says, right, we're going to pay you X amount of money. Yeah. But the dilemma, I think, is important. So I'll, mm. I'll give you an example. Yeah. I've got I've got a, a live example with a really good friend of mine. Mm. So he is a TV presenter on one of the the biggest TV shows in the, in the UK. Sure. That's 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 his kind of like bread and butter money, but he also does speaking mm-hmm. work at, in another area, and he really loves it. Like he really loves it. Being the TV presenter on this show obviously gets him lots of publicity Mm. lots of credibility but it speaks to a completely different group of people yeah so he makes this tv show speaks to a different group of people over here where he's getting all of his juice and his energy from and i'm like where are you at at, at with it now i I literally (laughs) saw him the other day here and he said i'm at this place it's a really difficult Mm. place because i really want to be over here but the tv show might next year be going overseas for this for a season (laughs) and i'm really excited about that but I really, this is what I really want to be doing because I, I, it was, <clears throat> or he is, sorry, in his, in his mid to late 40s. And he's like, where do I want to be in five years' time? 
when I'm in my early fifties, mm. what do I want to be doing for a living? Do I really want to be yeah. the guy on this 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 TV show? I nearly gave his name away then. The guy on this TV show, or do I really want to be doing this? Mm. And clearly, it's this is what he wants yeah. to be doing. This this public speaking, t- talking to corporates about how they can use his knowledge uh, and and run their businesses more efficiently. So I'm like, have you got a plan to for mm. that to be full time? Is that not yet? <clears throat> I'm like, oh. <clears throat> how much do you get paid to do these speaking gigs? He said, well, you know, I get paid... Uh, I'm going to just fabricate some numbers mm. here just out of respect for him. I get paid um, I get paid uh, $10,000, mm. okay, to do these speaking gigs. But when I go to America, they tell me that I could get 50. Mm. And I'm like, why? He said, I don't know, because they pay more in America. And I'm like, are you worth 50? He said, I don't know. Mm. So there's <laughs> an element of imposter syndrome there coming yeah. on yet. When you have people like that, very similar to how your story panned out, it's like he he's decided, look, I need to get this business to replace the income of mm. this business. Mm. And once that happens, I can then take that step. I see that that might take him another 12 months. Yeah. Or if he jumped now and he really executed on it over here, he'd mm. probably get it nailed in the next three or four months. Yeah. And that's the th- that that's the courage that, that that you had to be able to take that decision, mm. and 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 that's quite a courageous thing to do. You know, you can say my fourth client meant that I'd suffer, but it, you got a mortgage to pay, you got yeah. kids, you got responsibilities, <laughs> you know, and, and you got a car to pay for and fuel. It's not as easy as just leaping, is it? You know, it, it, it it's intimidating and scary. Mm. <coughs> and and that's why courage is so important. The courage to do something you've never done before. And one of the questions I often ask people when they're in that dilemma is how much longer will you avoid doing what you are capable of in order to continue with what you are comfortable doing? And it's a, it's a very powerful reflective question because it goes deep and it really challenges you. And I were to say to you, pick a hand. If you cannot make a decision, if the coin is in this hand, you go for this path. If it isn't, you go for the other. And when they choose a hand and the coin appears, if the path that tells them to go on doesn't sit with them, they will feel it. And I'll say, are you happy with that choice? Or do you wish the coin was in the other hand? And sometimes they say, you know what? I was really hoping there was no coin there. That tells you a lot. Mm -hmm. And... There was a guy called Adnan Shushu, an entrepreneur, who once said, the greatest regret successful entrepreneurs make, I wish I'd started sooner. Because the ideal scenario is, yes, we can make the income go to here. The reality is, you cannot predict when that will happen. (laughs) Things may happen out of the ordinary between now and then. If you wanted to start a restaurant in 2020, your plans would have been wrecked by April when the world went into lockdown. Mm -hmm. So you've got to decide what is it do you want? How can you start to make moves towards it now? Because the longer you wait, the harder it becomes to make that transition. You're right. There's a lot of people that will get excited about their Mm. dream opportunity. Let's take a restaurant. Gosh, there's loads of people out there that'd love to have a restaurant, Mm. you know, they're foodies or whatever it might be. I'd love a restaurant, (laughs) you know. Not that I would, but they want, but it's like, I'm a chartered accountant, mm-hmm. but I love food. And every holiday <laughs> I go on, I go on food tasting trips and I go and stay with chefs in hotels and I do cookery courses. Oh, I love it. You know, 
there are people out there like that. I know there are, yes? That's why I'm picking on it. To get from there to there, okay, is first of all, I don't know the steps. Mm. Secondly, do I really want to know the steps? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that happens yeah. a lot as well. It's like, you know, and, and then and then thirdly, okay, have I got the courage to do it? Mm. And so with the clients that you've worked with over the years, getting those people to, to see where those two differences are, I think the overwhelm mm. of one step to another is what then puts people into their fear-based state. Yeah. I, I, I think you, you, you're right there, Spencer. What overwhelms people is that they focus too much on the, the result rather than the steps. So they're saying, this is my job now, which I'm comfortable with, which I know, which I'm very experienced in. On the other side, taking your example, I want to be a speaker. I want to be earning my main income from that job. But the thing is, you're not going to get there straight away. And so we focus on that end result. It can feel overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It's like me saying, I want to launch a restaurant business and want it operating across London. That's overwhelming if I never started mm -hmm. a restaurant business. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I need to focus on is, what is the first small step I can take that will help me understand what I need to have in place mm -hmm. in order for that to happen? It becomes a lot more manageable. We have, we have culture, environment, and conditioning mm. as, as yeah. big issues, you know. Um, somebody, somebody described actually quite well so, uh, how a Monopoly board reflects life. <laughs> It was really interesting. He was a criminal. Mm -hmm. So he was, he was Britain's biggest fraudster who now helps banks work out fraud. So he's very, very um, dodgy guy, became a good guy. But anyway, if you look at a Monopoly board, he said, where's jail? He said, if you mm -hmm. go, you're at go, jail is in the far corner. Okay, so at the end of that side, he said, what do you go past? He said, you go past the old Kent Road, <laughs> the brown stuff, you go past mm -hmm. Penterville, okay, the blue stuff, you go past the cheap stuff to get mm -hmm. to jail. He said, as you go around the board past jail, the further you go from jail, mm -hmm. the wealthier it gets. <laughs> as you get around to the end, you've got Park Lane mm -hmm. and Mayfair. Yeah. He said, and that, he said, that, 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 and if you look at most people in jail, of course you have your ex-cons that were, were barristers or, or lords or mm -hmm. whatever it might be. He said, but most people that are criminals are coming from that poorer part yeah. of, of society. Um, and, and, and the conditioning that those people have. Now, of course, there are people that, mm. many rags to riches story of people that came sure. from nothing, but the majority don't do that. Mm. So when you're coaching somebody and, you know, there's that step they want to make, you've got to factor in that this is not just taking a step and learning some new skills. This is a whole new way of thinking. Yeah, it's, it's almost rewiring the architecture in someone's mind. And that's why as a coach, one of the key focal areas is to understand someone's world, to get in there and understand what they're seeing. So you can feel what they feel, you know what they know, and you know the best way to guide them forwards. Or the right question to ask in the right moment. Get in their world and understand what they're seeing. So to, give, to give an example. That's really important. If you ever watch a Sherlock Holmes television show or film, before Sherlock knows how to solve a mystery, he invites his guests into an armchair. And through questioning, he wants to understand what happened. And by going into their mind, he can begin to put the pieces together of how to solve the mystery. 
But you can't do that with the right, without the right questions. Mm-hmm. With the right questions, you can unlock the right answers and give birth to the transformation process. Now, this is why I think that mm. so many entrepreneurs fail. Because that, theoretically, mm. sounds brilliant. Mm. But the actual practice... So you get inside someone's head, you understand that person and how they think and how they operate. You then take that information, which helps you create a way of mm. them moving forward yeah. to, to their objective. You give them homework, you hold them accountable, you make sure that they come back and see you, whether that's weekly, monthly, mm-hmm. whatever it is, so that they can make sure they deliver on those things. The moment you're not there, what then happens? This is really about discipline here. There was a, there was a great Under Armour advert starring Michael Phelps and in there he said it's what you do in the dark that puts you in the light now the coaching can help the books can help the seminars can help but ultimately it's what you are doing when no one is watching what are you doing at home what are you doing in private because the rewards you get in public are determined by what you do when no one's watching and it's easy to say I'm going to do this I want to do that but your actions tell the world what your priorities are. Not what you say they are, it's your actions that tell the world what they are. And so that's why accountability is so important. You know, when you when you have a personal trainer, you show up, you go to the gym, you do the exercises, and then you show up again and again and again. If you have a manager, if you work in a company, and they say, hey, deadline is this, we need it done by this, or we lose the client, you get it done even if it means doing an overnighter. But when it's your life and it's your business, often the only person holding us accountable is ourselves. And often that's not the best person. You see, bang on the money. It, to me, it's like your conscious and your subconscious, all right? You've got mm. your, your, your subconscious is your risk management tool. It wants you to yeah. lay on the sofa, remote control on the chest with a bag of Cheetos. That's actually what it wants you to do. Don't take any <laughs> risks, okay? Risks, is, risks is, don't want any of that. That's stress. We don't want any of that. Just, just lay on the sofa, which is what a lot of people end up doing. Yeah. The conscious mind is where you have to sit. It has to literally overtake that subconscious mind and say, no, no, no. That's not what's happening, mm. okay? We're going to get up today and we're going to go for that walk, run, whatever it may be, or today we're going to execute on our business plan, whatever. Yeah. Every day. So that that whole accountability, I'm, a, I'm a, okay, I'm mm. the example, all right? Every day at 4.30, I mm-hmm. wake up and I'm at the gym at 5 a.m. Mm. I meet my personal trainer there who I will never mm. let down, all right? I never don't show up for yeah. the gym. I've been going to the gym, the same gym with him for the last God knows how many years. The time has never changed. Mm. Okay. He might occasionally say, I'm five minutes late. I apologize, but never mm. any more than that. He never doesn't show up yeah. and, and I never don't show up. Now, I will not let him down. Mm. Now, people say to me, oh, you get up so early in the morning. What does it feel like? I'm like, it feels like shit. <laughs> I can't wake up at 4.30, the alarm goes off and I'm like, another bloody day, you know. I get up, I go to the bathroom, I I have a wee, I have a shower, clean my teeth, go drive to the gym, put on a happy tune on the way to the gym to try and get Mm. myself in a good mood. Still not. Walk through the gym doors. I'm one of the first people in there. I I go, morning, morning to the two people (laughs) on reception. I go to the running machine and that's where I warm up and I warm up under a 15-minute run. 
by the time I've done a 15-minute run, my trainer's coming in, he's going, Logie, hold <laughs> in, and then there's all the energy and, we, and we're good, okay? And no matter what mood I'm in, okay, and, and no matter how much I don't like it, I love walking out the door of that gym. I feel really good about it. So I've, oh, I can't even believe I'm going to say this out loud because people are going <laughs> to hold this account, me accountable to this. So I've been here in London this week. Mm-hmm. And so my trainer said to me, have you got a gym you can go to? I said, where I'm staying ha- has got a gym. It's sure. not a very good gym. But you know what, I'm doing, I'm doing mm. running this week. Yep. He said, oh, great, yeah, run. You love running in London, go running. He said, what are you going to do every day? I said, mm-hmm. I think I'll do 5K on day one and I'll just increase it by 1K a day during the course of the week. He said, excellent, good, get stuck, let mm-hmm. me know. Brought enough gym gear to do all that kind of stuff. Got up on first morning, okay. Went for a 7K run. Loved mm. it. Oh, I'm in London. It's great. <laughs> the weather's cool. It's not hot. Mm. Loved it, loved it, loved it. That night, I didn't sleep very well. And I woke up and I only had, only had one person to negotiate with. Mm. Me. Mm. And I negotiated myself out of it. <laughs> now, had my trainer been waiting, mm. that wouldn't have happened. Mm. But I, even me... I talked myself out of the run on day two. And it just, for me, it's such a great example of, yeah. I know the benefits of the running. I know how much en- more energy I've got with the running at uh, the, the gym. I know that, you know, I bang on every day on social media, get up mm. and do some exercises, you lazy farts, you know, to people. Yeah. So I, I, I preach it, but I was able to talk myself out of it. And if mm. I can talk myself out of it without accountability, yeah. then can everyone else can. Else. Yeah. And so... Does that mean your job is never done or your work is never done with the people you work with? Mm. <coughs> well, one of the things I often preach about is that it is not being, it is not about being perfect 100% of the time. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Things will come up, you travel, uh, you might have something unexpected to attend to. So the goal is never to be perfect 100%. Mm-hmm. It's to be doing the habits most of the time. So if you are doing good habits 80% of the time, it is going to be far better than only doing it 20% of the time. So that's the first thing. Second, what you've shared touches on the fact that the fastest way to make progress in any area of our life is to design an environment around us that makes it impossible not to succeed. So when we think about our environment, it's the accountability partners. It's the books we read, the masterminds we're a part of, who we learn from, who we spend time with, what podcasts we listen to, what we watch on television, even the physical spaces that we spend time in. All of that influences how we see ourselves and what we see as possible. Mm, it does. Mm. Is even... Where do people start? Like, because... This, this, again, theoretic sounds great. Yeah. You know, I've been around this, sounds great. It makes total mm. sense, Simon. Yeah. Okay, sign me up. Okay, because it makes total sense. But for a lot of people, that's, <coughs> that's, that's a lot. And this is why you start with the smallest thing that is in your control that you can do now. Right now, however small, there's probably something that you've been thinking about for a while that you haven't actioned for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Something you could do right now, today. Now, if you do that, what happens is you now take one step forward. doesn't matter how small it is. It could be something as simple as write down one thing that I'm going to research this week. Tomorrow, it could be do the research. Now, what happens is that these things compound. A year from now, that is 365 steps forward. Just imagine where you could be. And I'm only talking one step. 
imagine if you did more steps. This is just one step. And I think that what happens is that if we don't plan ahead, if we don't prepare the week or the day before, what happens is there will always be something else that will eat up our time. Mm. That the longer term of the 365 days, you know, I'm mm. 53, that's not very long for me. Yeah. When I was 25, a year. Mm. Do what do something every day for a year. What a whole <laughs> year. And that was when I was 25, mm. which was 1995. Okay. Nowadays, if you produce a piece of content on social media, you've got a nanosecond, mm. okay, before someone scrolls past your reel, if the first three words that come out of your mouth or the, or the, or the melody they hear isn't in line with their thinking, yeah? They, and you do it and I do it as well. Yeah. So it's not like <laughs> others, it's us, isn't it? We sit yeah. there, what, what, what? So the patience that people have to get there, the, it, it, the good example of that is the diet. Mm. People want to lose weight. Now, everyone wants to lose weight, and there'll be there'll be people right now, what are we, beginning of June, summer holidays are coming. Yeah. Okay, so I need, I need to lose 10 <laughs> kg. I'm going, you know, first week of August, I've got two weeks, I'm going to Florida or whatever it might mm -hmm. be, you know, or Ibiza or whatever they do. So, got to lose some kilos. Oh, I want to get buff, you know, <laughs> you know that stuff that says. Yeah. You know that if you did what you were saying every day for a year in the gym, Okay, that way you get very clearly to a result. Mm. But people want it reduced. They want it, They want to be able to get the year's result in 60 days, mm. even less, 30 days. You know, it's like I say, if you had a tablet, you and I went into business and we had a tablet we could sell mm. that would help people lose 20 kilos in the next four weeks, okay? <laughs> We'd be billionaires, okay? Yeah. Who doesn't want that? Because everyone wants to lose weight fast. Everyone wants to get rich quick and everyone mm. wants a million followers. It's, it's the same over and over, yeah? So... With that in mind, of course the trajectory works. Yeah. But how do you deal with people that are like, yeah, but I need I need a result quicker than a year, Simon, you know? Yeah. It's, well, it's too long. First thing I would say is that if you want a quick result, then you're gonna very quickly revert back to who you were before after you got that result. So for example, if my if my goal is to run the London Marathon. I train for it, I eat well, I prepare, I get accountability partners. Once I've done the marathon, what next? Chances are I go back to who I was before. Mm -hmm. So the reality is to have long lasting change. What we have to focus on first is our identity. Who are you? Who do you want to be? Now, when you can attach yourself to an ideal identity, you change your lifestyle. So for example, my identity is I want to see myself as an athlete. What happens is when I'm in the supermarket, I am not going to be pushing my trolley to the junk food aisle. I'm going to be pushing it towards the fruit and the veg and the healthy sections because I'm working from that identity. So once I know who I must become to have what I want, I begin to make changes at a lifestyle level. I begin to make changes at the micro habit level. And what happens is all the rewards will come. Because as I often tell my clients, when you focus on the process, the rewards will come. Doing the work you do, are there challenges that some of your clients have and people that you connect with where there is somebody else involved in their life that's potentially an, a, a, an influence that's in a different direction than yours? So like a wife or a husband. Mm. I'll give you an example, and sorry, Anna, to my wife. But... <laughs> 
So my wife's idea of lifestyle is very different to mine. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I get up on a weekend, I go hiking. My wife thinks I'm weird for getting up and going <laughs> to the gym at five o'clock. She's like, why don't you go at eight? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, because I get back and have a shower and I can get so much more done by seven. Yeah. But she just says, like, but why? <laughs> because she's a very nocturnal person. Mm-hmm. So she's alive and full of energy at midnight. Yeah. You know, she's sitting down. She, she'll be chatting on the phone at two o'clock <laughs> in the morning to whoever it is, mm-hmm. her mates and whatnot. And I'm like, what are you doing that time of day? Mm-hmm. Now, if you're married, whoever that partner is, wife or husband, and you want to be that athletic person mm-hmm. that wants to eat the healthy stuff, and that's the lifestyle that you're now choosing, and you know yeah. that you don't want to go drinking on a Friday night, mm-hmm. and you know, you know, you don't want to go into <laughs> fancy restaurants because this is my life, you know, this, yeah. this is the trajectory I'm on, it's what I want to be. If you're the partner that's like, man, that's not my thing, okay, and wants to live a different type of life, how do you then coach somebody, okay, to manage that? Sure, I think the first thing to be aware of is achieving a certain lifestyle. Everyone will have a different way of doing it. So you might, for example, prefer going to gym early in the morning. Someone else might prefer doing it at lunchtime or at the end of the working day. As long as it works for you and you can still live the lifestyle you want, the execution of it can be driven by yourself. As long as you are consistent in applying it. For me, what's most important in in influences, whether it's in relationships or partners or colleagues or so on, is do you share the same values? If you share the same values, of course, there'll be differences. And it's about respecting the differences because we're all going to have different ways of wanting to do things. It's why some things that I do, my wife would do very differently. And in some ways, I like that because I can learn from her and she can learn from me as well. But we share the same values. For example, we we both want to leave a legacy that we can be proud of. We both want to live a long life. We both want to raise great children. Now, how each of us does that or the way, the opinions we have about that, of course, they, they, they may be different. And I think this is where we can understand other people's views as well to find common ground and and ways that we can move forward together. The key is that it has to be positive. And the only difference that exists in your family is that your kids are going to be told you can either be a doctor, a lawyer, or an entrepreneur. Mm. <laughs> you could be an entrepreneur. Mm. Come on. <laughs> Definitely. But I think the, the one thing I was I, I would say to my children is that entrepreneur is not a job title. Banker, chef, electrician, vet, they are titles. Entrepreneur is a lifestyle. Entrepreneur is a way of living. And so with a title, when you go out of the office, go on the holiday, you can switch off. When you're an entrepreneur, it's very difficult to switch off mm-hmm. because it's a lifestyle that you've chosen. It's a way of living. It's how to think. It's how to be, how to spot opportunities. And so once you appreciate that it's a lifestyle, then you're much more prepared for the mindset required to become a successful entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really, really on point. Talk to me about making money as opposed to making yourself happy. Because mm. a lot of the time, you know, I was definitely one of them, you know, money, 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 money. Then I got all the money and then I realised that the money wasn't actually what, mm. was, what was the benefit to me. Money is like petrol in the sense that if you drive a car, you need to fill it up with petrol. How much petrol 
d- depends on where you want to go. But you have to know where you want to go in order to fill out your tank. It's the same thing with money. Money is a means to get you somewhere. But if you don't know where you want to get to, you have no idea how much money you want to make. That's why if you ask people, what would be financial freedom for you? The default answer is, oh, if I'm a millionaire, if I make lots of millions of dollars, I will be financially free. But they don't have a number. They don't have a specific number. And when you don't have numbers, the mind doesn't have something to focus on. That's why successful businesses, if you say to them, what is financially free? Well, if we can exit at X million, that will be a success. Now you've got the number, you can work back. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of a question I asked a friend of mine. Uh, he said to me, Simon, I'm, I'm looking to earn more than my friend. And I think that because my friend's earning this, I'm, I'm not good enough until I earn more than him because I think I'm better. And what I said to him is that once you've earned that money, then what? What would you do with it? And he didn't know. So the thing is, money is good. It buys us options. But happiness is living a life of, of fulfillment. Happiness is living a life where you get to choose how to spend your life, with who to spend it with. Money's great, but it's only a resource. It's only fuel to get you somewhere. Now, of course, when you start a business, money is oxygen. You need it to survive. But then when you've got the money, it's then what is the purpose for that money? Otherwise, that money will flow in areas you didn't intend it to do. Mm. Just like winning the lottery. You get all of this money. Next minute, you know you're spending on things you didn't ever need. And then you become poor again. And you realize, actually, money never got me happiness. Mm -hmm. Money bought me options. But actually, happiness begins with being grateful. Happiness begins with realizing how much you already have and just how abundant the world is. What makes you happy? What makes me happy is knowing that I've had a positive impact on people's lives and that I have a loving family and that uh, the quality of my children uh, will continue after my passing. And how big a part does this word gratitude play in your life? Massive. Massive. Uh, I remember one of the... uh, first exercises I did about gratitude, which really got me to appreciate just how powerful it is. And and I share it in the book. It's a three-step exercise. The first step is writing down the name of someone that you can be truly grateful for. The first name that comes to your head. The second step is writing down why in as much detail as you can. The third step is calling that person and telling them what you wrote in step two. Now, if the first step is a little uncomfortable, at a minimum, you want to send them a voice note. The reason is, is because voice carries energy. If you send a text or an email, I have to make up the emotional state that you were in when you send that. I I, I can't predict it. But if I hear your voice, I hear emotion, I hear energy. And when I did that exercise, it was so profound in making me feel happy that I realized I wanted to express my gratitude more and more often. As as William Arthur Ward said, feeling grateful and not expressing it 
is like buying someone a present and never giving it. And so gratitude has been massively helpful for me. I remember when I was putting on an event a few years ago and I inquired at the venue what the cost would be to hire the space. And the woman replied to me and she said, Simon, we're going to give you the space for free and we can't wait for the event to be a success. My first question was, why? Why are you giving it to me for free? And she replied and she said, Simon, we never forgot how you treated us a few years ago and the big hamper that you bought myself and the team. We never forgot that gesture and we would love to repay it back to you. But the thing was, I never did it with an expectation of a return. Of I did it just because I was so grateful that they helped me. And so I wanted to extend my gratitude. Okay, tell me about your book. <laughs> so Energize. In, uh, in 2020, I was so grateful to have had a conversation with Penguin and for them to believe in the work that I do. And when they offered me a, a book deal and then to get endorsements from the likes of Simon Sinek and Marie Folia, it was an absolute dream. And I remember Penguin said to me, so Simon, what would you like to write a book about if you could choose a topic? And the first thought that came to my mind was energy is everything. Now, through the editing process, that got condensed to energize. But I really wanted to speak to that because I was in a period of my life where I was absolutely drained, mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And to go from that point to where I am today, energized every day, on stages, coaching incredible clients, Michelin star chefs, TV presenters, C-level executives, traveling the world. It has been a roller coaster. And I really wanted to speak to that. How did I get from where I was to where I am now? And I also wanted to touch on a point that I received every time I speak on stages. When I, when I come down, I would often get people come up to me and say, Simon, I loved the energy you had on stage. You know, if only I could have a small percentage of the energy you have, I could accomplish so much. And I really want to speak to that. It's amazing how, how we, it's this thing that exists that until we stop and talk about it, we don't even think about it. it it's so true, yet yeah, it's everywhere in the mainstream. In Star Wars, we call it the Force. In yoga, we call it prana. In my culture, we call it chi. In Maori culture, they call it mana. We all talk about it, but few of us know how to harness it and to use it to activate our dormant faculties so we can live a most fulfilling and extraordinary life. Every morning, I get people messaging me after I do my morning story on the way to the gym, okay? <laughs> and pe people, the comments are the same every time. Where do you get the energy from? Mm. Where do you, why are you so energetic? <laughs> and I'm like, you know, and I'm like, it's, it's literally the most important thing mm. that I use, need and have every day. And I believe if everybody went to the gym and created yeah. a bit of energy for themselves, you know, motion creates emotion, mm. create a bit of energy for themselves, they'd have a much better day. 
Totally. Regardless totally. of their situation, whether it's a dead end job that they hate, whether that's a you know a, a family issue that they've got, whether that's a you know a weight loss goal, whatever it might be, whatever, you cannot help but have a better day if you create some energy. Yeah, and and the thing is, here's what to keep in mind: you may not always want to work out. However, you never regret having worked out after, because what happens is. You change your physiology, you change your chemistry in your brain. And so whatever the world throws your way, if it's a challenge or if it's an unexpected curveball, the way you respond to that after you've done a workout is vastly different to if you didn't move your body. You're in a much higher energetic state to handle whatever the world throws your way. You've done a remarkable job. And I just want to say thank you for making the effort and bringing your energy to our show today. Thank you so much for having me. 